Hello and welcome to another edition of Science, A Candle in the Dark. This is our monthly conversation about the wonder of science and how it illuminates our lives in this incredible universe. The show is produced in association with the Central Valley Cafe Scientifique and uh, we strive to make science a part of the public discourse, especially here in the Central Valley. I'm your host, Dr. Madhusudan Katti from the Biology Department at Fresno State. And I have a couple of interesting guests spanning uh, the science spectrum here today. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, just a quick uh, note about some things in the science news that have struck me in the past month since we last had our show. There have been some incredible discoveries in my broader area of research in biology, I think, that are pretty remarkable in terms of our understanding of human origins and evolution and the evolution of life, which have been within the last uh, month or so. One of the ones that you may have heard about is was the big discovery of one of the biggest collections of uh, human ancestral remains in South Africa, uh, Homo Nadeli, which was a remarkable discovery, not only because it was one of the biggest ones, a single collection of human remains found in a cave. It was also remarkable in terms of how the science was conducted to do that because this was a collaboration among amateur cave explorers, cavers like we have here in the valley as well, uh, in South Africa collaborating with uh, anthropologists who stumbled upon or were actually looking for potential remains because that area has had other evidence of human fossils or sorry uh, not human but uh, our ancestral fossils and then uh, so once the some explorers found a likely site, then the anthropologists put together a team and, and what was remarkable about that as well is because the access to the site inside this cave was through some narrow channels which, which limited the dimensions of human beings who could actually crawl through without disturbing the site. So it was interesting the way they, they assembled the team as well because the, the, main, uh, the team actually called for people researchers with experience you know working with fossils in the field who actually fit some physical dimensions now that's not something that we <laughs> often hear when you see ads for uh, recruiting for scientists and this was uh, also i think done using social media they they put out a call on facebook and uh, they got a number of people interested in applying and as it turned out they put together a team of six women all you know uh, who could fit the dimensions to actually crawl through and they went in and they found a, a remarkable cache of human remains, which also was remarkable because it, it suggests that this was not a random scattering of bones, but it might have been a burial site. So not only is this discovery pushed back uh, the sort of boundary of or, or filled in more of this, the tapestry of human origins, but it's also potentially giving us some insight into the evolution of human culture and how we might have related with you know our, our, our 
ancestors and the, the various cultures and rituals we have developed in terms of how we deal with our dead so and which seems like a remarkable really remarkable thing about human evolution so that's a that was one story that was really riveting to follow the other amazing thing about that is that the story is was not only conducted as a citizen science project but it was also very open access so once they determined that this was a new species and the fossils were analyzed they've made all the data available online and if any of you listening here actually have access to a 3d printer you can go just search for uh, the fossil I f i'm forgetting the website name now but you can find the blueprints or the print files for these fossils and print out your own copy of these fossils now i i no i don't teach human anatomy or human origins but what a remarkable tool for teachers to be able to use something like this with 3d printers becoming cheaper so that was one story that was that i thought was really remarkable and then just this week in evolutionary biology there was a, a new study suggesting that uh, life may have originated maybe 3 or 400 million years earlier than we thought right now the general estimates on the age of the earth uh, are around 4 and a half billion years or so right this is something you may recall from a show we did a few months ago with uh, uh, a geologist talking about how we age things uh, in the fossil record and at that time we were t we had talked about how the earliest origins of life were dated at around maybe 3 and a half billion years or so so about a billion years maybe after the earth formed and you know, things cooled down and so on but now it looks like life might actually have started much sooner even under conditions that we tend to think of as being pretty hostile now at the other end of the story and this is where we'll talk to our guest today we've had some remarkable new uh, developments in our ability to not just understand and look at human origins but to start manipulating the genetic material that is in some sense defines our biological essence and that has raised some uncomfortable questions some interesting questions and intrigued a lot of scientists and i think a lot of the, the public doesn't quite understand the the technology or the ramifications of that so that's why i invited our guests uh, who will also be speaking at the next cafe scientific and expanding on this conversation so let me uh introduce our guest today uh first we have uh, dr trisha van laar who is uh, one of my newest colleagues in the biology department uh, uh dr van laar got her uh, she's actually from the central valley yes. and uh, uh, she went to stanislaus state I for did. her undergraduate degree uh welcome to uh, science a candle in the dark thank Trisha. you and after getting up her undergraduate degree from here she got a, a masters from the university of pacific mm -hmm. and then went on to do a phd from the university of texas in san antonio yes and she came back to the valley after uh, spending time some time as a postdoctoral researcher also in texas where she was looking at uh, the effects of uh, or the evolution of antibiotic resistance uh, while working in the va hospital so she's our, our newest microbiologist uh, and our other guest here is uh, uh, dr andrew reese jones he's from the department of sociology and uh, he got his phd from the university of oregon 
and full disclosure, I guess, if he's been a, a close collaborator of mine uh, on studies of urban ecology, but he's a he's an environmental sociologist with a lot of interest in in pop culture and and zombies and you know, <laughs> uh, but uh, both in terms of cultural zombies as well as uh, uh, as the uh, fictional ones. But he, he's he's a keen observer of uh, science in the in the social sphere. So I thought it'd be interesting to put the a sociologist and a biologist together to ask about to talk about what these new biotechnologies mean. So welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Nice to be here. So let me start off by. Uh, asking Dr. Van Laar about the new biotechnologies, right? We and the term that we hear that people may or may not have come across, and I think it's going to become more widespread perhaps, is this technique called CRISPR. CRISPR. Yes, it's a, it's a good acronym. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. what it stands for is Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. And to put that in <laughs> terms that are easier to understand, it talks about in a bacterial genome, you've got these regions of DNA between 24 and 48 bases um, that are regularly occurring in interspace. So they're short mm -hmm. um, and they occur in the bacterial genome. They were found in the late 80s in E. coli because bacterial people love E. coli and that's what <laughs> we do a lot of work in. Mm -hmm. um, and for a long time we didn't know what does it do? It's there, what does mm -hmm. it do? As gene sequencing advanced, they started to see these in lots of other bacterial species. Um, they were calling them lots of different things, and then finally, in the early 2000s, they said CRISPR, because we also like acronyms, mm -hmm. and we of like course, fun, yeah. fun short little words. And so CRISPR um, is what it became, and uh, towards the late 2000s, the really interesting development with CRISPR is they finally figured out what it's for. And it's actually a bacterial immune system. And we tend to think of, of immunity as something that vertebrates have. We get an infection, we learn from it. The next time we get that infection, we fight it off. And we didn't think that lower organisms had such an advanced capability. And it turns out the bacteria remember their infections too. That's a pretty remarkable thing because you don't, we tend to think of bacteria as infectious agents. Correct. You never really worry about their immune system. Right, well who cares yeah. about, you know, if they get yeah. sick, yeah. but they do get sick. Viruses mm -hmm. called bacteriophages can infect bacteria and so what the bacteria do is they take a little piece of that viral DNA mm -hmm. and they put it in their own genome and that's what those CRISPR areas are. Oh, They're okay. pieces of the virus that are now part of the bacteria. So okay. if that virus comes back, they use that as memory to chop it up and get rid of their infection because they don't want to die. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty much shutting down viral replication within the cell of the bacterium. Right, basically yeah. destroying the viral DNA before the virus gets a chance. Because what a virus will do to a bacteria is it will replicate inside the bacteria, it will assemble itself, and eventually it'll fill up the bacteria with virus and cause it to explode. Mm -hmm. No more bacteria. Yeah. Right. So they try to shut that down. So, so this, uh, I want to get to how this then becomes this new technique for editing DNA. But before that, since you mentioned viruses infecting bacteria, hasn't that been one of the one of the ways that we have actually used to transfer genes between organisms, especially into bacteria and into other organisms, using viruses to carry uh, genes that we want from one species to another? Yeah, we can do it with genes that we mm -hmm. want, and they also do it naturally with genes we don't want them yes. to, to share. And so um, they can share a lot of 
things like antibiotic resistance mm -hmm. and proteins that make us sick can be transferred from one bacteria to another. A, a big example that we can think about is um, Shigella and E. coli. They both have the same exact toxin called Shiga toxin, and they mm. think it was probably spread from one virus, from one bacteria to another through a viral vector. Yeah, that's one of the things that really fascinates me about uh, the more I learn about the microbial systems now and you know all these the microbiome is very much in the news but as an evolutionary biologist the thing that I think a lot of us have not fully quite grappled with in understanding evolution is this horizontal transfer of genes between organisms right you, you know when you go back to the framework of evolutionary theory it started with looking at species that are kind of more like us in terms of having sexual reproduction and you know inheriting genes in the vertical fashion from parent to offspring but it turns out this whole microbial world does things very differently and that makes it interesting fascinating and challenging to study how genetic variation works but but also in the public realm i think this and maybe i don't want to get sidetracked into a discussion of gmos but it does <laughs> get into the fact that that the genome in some ways is not perhaps as a sacred a, a text that that some people seem to think it is that most organisms have evolved to sort of treat it flexibly and a lot of the microbes will freely exchange bits of DNA to acquire traits or to deal with infections or to deal with new elements in the environment in ways that we are only just beginning to understand. Yeah, right. and, that, and that's that's absolutely true. And when we talk a little bit more about CRISPR, we can talk yeah. about some of the things that they've done to alter animals and they're really not altering the animals in any way that alters the animal itself, but they're actually removing parts of microbes that have been found in oh, okay, yeah. mammalian genomes. Uh -huh. So, you know, th the way that people are now adapting the technology is, so I told you that CRISPR is kind of this region that has these viral genomes. So what happens is the full name of the system that people are starting to use is CRISPR-Cas9. And so Cas9 is a CRISPR-associated protein. That's why it's Cas. And there are a bunch of them, but Cas9 is the one that they talk about the most. So what happens is uh, that DNA, that, that viral DNA will be turned into RNA. Mm -hmm. um, and these Cas proteins, basically what they do is they see that RNA, and then they look for the match on the viral DNA. They should, they should be a pair, right? Mm -hmm. Because the viral DNA came from the virus. When they see it, what these Cas proteins will do is chop it up. So they look for what they recognize, they look for their template, and then they chop it up. And so scientists thought, well, will they chop up any template we give them? And okay. it turns out that yes, they okay. will. Huh. And so that's how they've started to use this technology to target specific genes. So it's, it's more in terms of chopping up and removing bits but can it also be used to add specific bits? Yes, and so, you know, what you get when you, you know, you chop a, a piece of DNA, so DNA is double-stranded, mm -hmm. you chop up and you remove this piece, the body doesn't like that. You know, the cells, yeah. the cells don't like to have just yeah. that. So they'll try to put it back together, <coughs> and so when you put this, you know, CRISPR-Cas9 system in to chop out the gene that you don't want to have, you can try to put in a gene that you do want to have, and then you'll hope that they'll put in what you want. And, and that okay. actually, I think, brings up, for those that are aware of the implications of this, some of the potential problems. Uh, I think they call it 
off-target effects mm -hmm. and mosaicism with respect to I it's not um, Can I explain completely what efficient. Mean? Well, off-target effects, uh, what is it? You may have uh, similar DNA sequences that the Cas9 will target, mm -hmm. and so it may cut those up as well. And mm -hmm. so then you get um, either, what, a mutation effect or you have, uh, what, genetic destabilization right. within the, the gene mm -hmm. code. So that's off-target effects. And then um, I think mosaicism has to do with you may not get all of the targets actually In cut the, right the same way. And, and what you want as that preferable genetic sequence may not go into every single cell that you're targeting. Right. Yeah, and so that's, you know, that's one thing that's kind of a downside to the fact that they're short repeats. The okay, shorter yeah. the segment, the more likely it is that you'll have, you know, if you're looking yeah. at ATC, you probably have ATC everywhere. Yeah. The longer and longer and longer you get, the more specific you get. But you could run into an, an area where you have, it's too short and you may have something fairly similar. Um, and then with the mosaicism, when you think about, you know, most scientists aren't interested in doing this in bacteria. Now, of course, I mm -hmm. think it's cool. You know, <laughs> let's yeah. cut out bacterial uh, yeah. genes. But people want to do it in plants, in animals, in people. Yep. And in each of our cells, we have two copies of every single gene. And so if you only do it in one, you may not get the effect, effect you want. You want yeah. and, and wasn't that... Um, if we go back to 2012 with the, the Chinese research that was done on the uh, non-viable embryos. Sure. They, um, wasn't it when they wrote up their findings, they were pointing out that they had this issue of mosaicism and off-target effects. And mm -hmm. they didn't know whether it was the CRISPR-Cas9 that was the um, producer of these effects or if it was because they had double-fertilized the embryos. And so they didn't know whether it was the technique or if it was what they had done to the embryos to make sure that they didn't, right? They weren't viable. Yeah, and there and there, you know, there was some of that, and you know, um, there were other scientists who kind of criticized the study, not in that they were manipulating human embryos, but they were saying, well, they used an old version of the CRISPR-Cas technology. Okay. So if they'd used a better version, they would have had better results. So the technology is Im has improving constantly as well. Oh, it's constantly improving. And I, I even just read some articles this morning that they're finding a new protein that may cut even better than Cas. Okay. And so there are companies that have already started, of course, you start patenting things. So there's a mm. company at Harvard, a company based out of Stanford, and they've already started to patent this CRISPR-Cas9. And so when they do that, then it becomes really cost prohibitive to work with the technology. But there are these other proteins that they're finding that may do it just as well. And so then you can get around the patents. Mm. And I think that actually brings in, you mentioned GMOs earlier mm -hmm. and the controversy over that. And I, I think many in the scientific community are talking past community members that have concern about GMO. So there's the, the science of genetically modified organisms that really isn't controversial. There's a lot of misunderstandings of it. I think what people are really concerned about, and this isn't being articulated well, is the patenting, the ownership, yeah. the fact that this is in corporate hands mm -hmm. yep. and thus is a commodity rather than, say, uh, a technology that should be part of the the public good, right? Yep. The commons, yep. rather than something that is proprietary and owned by Monsanto, ADM, you know, yep. entities of this sort. And so I think there's the same concern with regard to CRISPR mm -hmm. that if you've got 
institutions that are patenting again life forms or or this technique that they're going to charge inordinate amounts of money for even researchers to be able to have access to it right and so that that becomes one of the bioethical mm -hmm. issues i think that really needs to be talked about in a public discourse rather than just running roughshod and doing yep. it and then we're playing catch-up right so yeah so I mean, we'll, we'll get to talking a little bit more about this these ethical and social dimensions but just on the technology one thing i'm curious is why i mean we've been able to insert genes into organisms move them around and you know gmo techniques have been around for uh, almost a couple of decades now in terms of you know even commercial use so what makes CRISPR so much more exciting for uh, geneticists or microbiologists like you? Well, it's easier. Okay. Um, it's faster. You know, if you're trying to, say you're trying to make a knockout mouse, you're interested in studying a gene that, I the gene responsible for cystic fibrosis, and you mm -hmm. want to make a knockout mouse. That could take you years of work. So a knockout mouse means one that lacks the gene. Yeah, yeah. So or, or even a replacement. So you remove yeah. the bad gene, you put in a good Something gene, or you want to know what a gene does, so you want to knock it out in the yeah. mouse, mm -hmm. get rid of it, and see, well, what happens now when this mouse doesn't have this gene? Mm -hmm. And that could take years of, of selective breeding. It can be very difficult to do. With CRISPR, you get the embryo, you do it right there, and... Once the mouse is born, the you know a, a, a good population of your mice will now have this trait. So it's it's easy, it's fast, um, and when you're looking at let's again use the mouse example, just to make one gene disappear in a mouse is very very difficult. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine what if you were interested in studying the effects of two genes in a mouse? Well, you mentioned cystic fibrosis. That actually is a multi-gene kind of right uh, disorder, right? Yeah. yeah, and so or you know. If you are looking at, you know, a, they call it a double knockout, that yep. could be so difficult. It, you know, it, it could take years and years and years, and you may not ever get it. But with CRISPR, you just knock them all out. Every gene you're interested in, five genes, six genes, all at the same time. So okay. And you can do it quite precisely. I've heard descriptions of this CRISPR-Cas9 being, you know, akin to being able to edit letters in an in an encyclopedia without making errors is it is it that precise it is fairly precise and you know i i said five six and you guys mm -hmm. your eyes kind of got big um there was a, a study that just came out recently where in pigs so one of the ideas would be if we could put pig organs in people for organ transplantation maybe people wouldn't die on a transplant list yeah. mm -hmm. but it's very difficult to put a pig organ in a person and one of those difficulties is the fact that pigs in their genome have all these pieces of viral DNA from viruses that they've been infected with. And every time you would put a pig cell with a human cell, that virus would jump to the human cell. And so what um, a research group did, I, I want to say somewhere on the East Coast, is they actually removed, using CRISPR, 65 wow. of these regions of these uh, porcine endogenous retroviruses from wow. the genome. So in some ways you could sort of clean out a genome of a lot of stuff that you don't want. Right. And, and that's where I guess some really f potentially exciting but also potentially frightening scenarios come to mind. This is brave new world. Well, this is the, uh, what you're referring to is germline mm -hmm. sequencing. Yes. Right. And, and therein, I think, as people become more as this becomes more salient, as more people understand what CRISPR is about, I think it's the germline 
gene editing that is going to be a, a source of concern for people because what you're talking about is uh, you know you, you are fundamentally altering the genetic makeup of the organism yes. creating the, the knockout mouse as Absolutely. you put it and uh, that and in and in a controlled way that is sort of unprecedented yeah you know i mean it this happens naturally in many organisms as you described but being able to target and in a sense we are heading towards designer organisms yeah i, I think <laughs> i mean we're not yeah. talking about the bioethics yet but yeah. that I yeah, think as a long-term concern, yeah. and this is why I think members of the scientific community have called for a moratorium, mm -hmm. is their concern over the germline gene editing versus, uh, what is it, when you're doing somatic cells, mm -hmm. you're reintroducing it into the organism to right. do the knockout for like experimenting on mice, for instance. That's non-controversial. Right. And so I think... Um, you know, once we segue into mm -hmm. talking about this, well, we can. We, we've already segued, I think. So oh, okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it's a long-term uh, issue that we need to be having conversations about now, uh, because you know, speaking as a sociologist, given the history of eugenics in this mm -hmm. country and elsewhere, you know, you could see some real potential for, if not abuse of the technology, ideological advocacy for maybe a, a new form of eugenics right. down the road within humans. Yeah. Well, it's what do you well, how do you decide which are the undesirable characteristics that you want to get rid of? Yep. You know, I don't think anybody would complain if, let's say, you know, you were planning on having a child and they told you, hey, you have a 25% risk of having a child that has cystic fibrosis. Yep. You go ahead and let us do this, Chris, we'll fix it. And we'll guarantee that your child will not have cystic fibrosis. And I think most people would say, yes, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm also thinking about the, the BRCA sort of cancer exactly. gene. And mm -hmm. exactly. it was in the news recently with Angelina Jolie's mm -hmm. decision to have a mastectomy preventatively. Correct. Now imagine if you could just target the gene. Right. And right. now you reduce the risk significantly or, you know, w any sort of Tay-Sachs, any of those diseases mm -hmm. that are that you know my child has a risk of this huntington's parkinson's yeah and even beyond say humans mm -hmm. um what is it there are scientists down in florida right now that have altered mosquitoes so as to prevent them from being vectors for malaria mm -hmm. and right now they're just looking at um well it, it's getting permission to actually introduce them into the florida region right so that they can actually eradicate malaria or yeah. at least eradicate the mosquito breed that carries malaria so um, I think what people need to understand in order to maybe not see the germline gene editing as maybe such um, a threat or or something to be feared is to understand that what can be sequenced out can also be sequenced back in mm -hmm. correct so if this doesn't work out with the mosquitoes for instance right you there could reverse it a reversal uh, of the the CRISPR right. function that, that has taken place. So, but there is no reversing of the genie that's out of the bottle with this technology now. No, but I mean, sense. no. I, if you look and, at, and, and that's where the ethical dis discussions become interesting. Especially, you know, we've, we've mentioned several times the studies being done in China, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that w that's been controversial because, and it, it amuses me. You know, as someone coming from India. And it always sort of amuses me to hear Western scientists sort of getting all, you know, agitated about ethical violations somewhere else where 
there's a long history of dubious ethical <laughs> experimentation oh, yes. right here in the U.S. Yes. So it was amusing to Willowbrook. <laughs> yeah. Uh. We, let's not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> but the Chinese, you know, oh, they'll do things that we will never allow to happen. So that that's kind of interesting. But yeah, and, and, and just to add a bit on that, I remember that there was a, an op-ed uh, by Steven Pinker from Harvard. Oh. Uh, arguing recently that ethicists, bioethicists, essentially need to get out of get the out way. Get out of the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm getting the wind up here, so actually we're oh. getting close to the time. But if you want to just have some last comments on uh, the ethical dimensions, well, I mean, um, Pinker, I, I read his piece, mm-hmm. and I, I envisioned him with a microphone standing on a wrestling platform. You know, like you need to get out of the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> e- ethics underpins everything we do. Mm-hmm. There's a philosophy to doing science, yeah. right? It underpins what we do. So bioethics is going to be part of the discourse on how this technology is going to be employed, what what are the ethical dimensions of it. This is going to be part of the discussion no matter what. Yep. And to tell people that they need to get out of the way um, is a very extremist position that really doesn't acknowledge what scientists do in terms of research design. I mean, we... We have to think these things through, mm-hmm. right? You got to check and make sure there's water in the pool before you dive in. Yep. Right. And so in terms of, of human subjects, internal review boards, all these things are already in place. And we're, we're going to have this conversation. And yep. I don't think it does any good to have somebody saying uh, a certain category of people need to step out of the way and yep. per- allow this to proceed. Yep. I mean, we're going to have this conversation. Yeah. So I'd like give you the last word on this. Well, I, and as a scientist, I, I totally agree. Yeah. Th- the ethical considerations need to be addressed, they need to be discussed, or you do end up with something like Tuskegee again, and mm-hmm. that's not okay. Great. So we will continue this conversation at the Cafe Scientifique. Uh, both of these guests will be with us at Peeves Pub on November 2nd. That's our next uh, Cafe Scientifique event. And uh, we'll be back here on the air uh, in the on the fourth Tuesday of November with another guest and another edition of Science A Candle in the Dark. Uh, the show is produced by me and uh, Vic Bedoyan here at the uh, KFCF and uh, our theme music was composed by Scott Hatfield. Uh, if you want to find out more about Cafe Scientific, visit our website. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter and uh, hopefully you will be able to join us at Puff for a good conversation and continuation of this this exploration of the ethical dimensions of science. So until next month or until next week when we meet at Peace Pub, remember, science is a verb. So keep to have fun doing it. Thank you. <laughs>